This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. despite us working from home. We're still at level 3, and there have been cases of the Delta variant in the Waikato. And that is a bit of a scary thought, despite numbers around vaccination rates being up. Um, For the Waikato, uh, the breakdown currently, or when I got this, was Raglan had 23 cases, Hamilton 21, Cambridge Karapiro 3, Kafia 1, Tiawamutu Kiki 22, Fata 3, and that gave a total of 73. But I suspect that now has changed um, since those figures were released. Um, interestingly, um, when we think about the nation as a whole, we have, um, on a statistics based here, um, that head of the pack is Dunedin, and they've got 78.8% of people fully vaccinated, so they're closing in on the 90%. Uh, Auckland stands at 739 but I think that may have actually changed, and Auckland were currently sitting in sixth place. Hamilton is standing or sitting at ninth place at 71.6% and 16.9, no, 16.3, sorry. Um, Although the first vaccination, the first figure, 71.6, was people who were fully vaccinated. So they're also closing quickly on that 90%. And one thing that caught my eye was the position of Thames Coromandel standing at 16%, or 16, sorry, and having 16.1% fully vaccinated and 12.9% at one dose only. So that puts them around about 80, 82, yes, 82. So they're slowly um, catching up as well. Um, and I'll say that why that's interesting, because of the, the position of the current mayor. Um, so, yeah, they're pushing pushing towards that 
and that 90% is important because we're getting this traffic light system, green, amber and red kind of reminds you of that um, 1910 Fruit Company song. Yes, if you remember your um, bubblegum bubble pop. So, yeah, pushing on with that, um, the announcement around the um, traffic light system was early yesterday, and the details are probably, you're going to probably go read through the details, it's all in the, all in the mix here. But on the release of the, of the information by the government around this, it looked like old Collins and Seymour had just um, sucked their second lemon. And that's one part of the COVID front. The other part of the COVID front was the um, day in court of one Brian Tamaki for that event in Auckland where rules were breached around distancing and gatherings, etc., etc. And poor old sad man um, having to face his... Um, face the court system regarding that breach and um, I've got no sympathy for the man at all and I suspect the soap jokes were well were well placed in that in that space. The other one, other event that, that caught my attention was the trade deal with the UK and lo and behold uh, Boris Johnson uh, British Prime Minister, or Village Idiot, or both, had announced the lifting of tariffs on certain New Zealand goods, including wine and other products, and all the the joyous clanging of glasses by the well-heeled here regarding that. But the word of warning in regard to that particular type of trade deal is who actually benefits and who actually loses. I'd see that the losers would probably be some of the British um, producers um, around meat, dairy products, and I don't know if they've got a wine industry, they may do, um, with, with um, them competing against goods from New Zealand that have no tariffs on. So I can sort of, I can empathise with the British Labour Party's position regarding that. Um, it's not doesn't sound too good for them. It could mean that people could go easily out of business over there, and the people who were happy here are the um, likely um, suspects: uh, National Act, Federated Farmers, business communities, etc. Yes, but out of all that, who's actually going to benefit from it? Is it going to be all of us, or just a select few? Oh my god, a sneaking suspicion in this kind of capitalist neoliberal environment that'll be the very few that will benefit and most of us will be business as usual, which means that we either just get along or we will bloody well struggle. Another one also of significance is the climate change um, meeting in Glasgow. And it wasn't actually to do with um, the event it, the event um, itself in particular, but it was to do with some of the dirty dealings on the side, um, like, for example, Australia, uh, Saudi Arabia, and um, Japan was wanting things 
water down, particularly around fossil fuels. And we and we saw that that fall from um, Australia scummo going on about how important the coal industry is to Australia, and people talking about if if we do away with coal, we lose our jobs. But interestingly, comment that came out from an econ- economist saying that if we if we convert or transfer over to the green-based or green-based industries, people should be able to move from one particular type of industry into another quite easily. So there was dirty dealings around that, and the other dirty dealings were were around the um, methane emissions by cattle, and, and I think Brazil and Argentina want it watered down as well. So you're getting these sort of sneaky, underhanded dealings of trying to water down something that is quite important. Um, people just don't want to move fast enough in that space because they think that the um, the catastrophe, the climatic catastrophe or environmental catastrophe that is um, that's, um, people have been talking about is not that, not that close. But I think... Yes, it's pretty well, damn well close. So again, just watch out, see what happens. I, I tend to fear that these types of conferences tend to get watered down and um, things get nutted out. But in the, in the final analysis, you always get a, a, a tepid response or a tepid agreement, which doesn't do a hang of a lot in those countries that really feeling the sharp edge of climactic change are still going to feel that sharp end edge unless major players um, buckle down and do something about the um, the whole issue around climate and the changing climate. So that's the week in review.
week I, I went through my Facebook and I found this letter that was sent to the Prime Minister by a person by the name of Hugh Perrett. And he is a member of the New Zealand Business Hall of Fame, a throw-up group. And it was the former managing director of Foodstuffs and the founder of Pack and Save Discount Grocery Chain. Apart from sending it to the Prime Minister, he also sent it to um, other to some political dullards in the form of Collins, Seymour, Retty, Bridges, Goldsmith, Luxton. And it's titled Distorted Governance Perspective. It says, and I'm going to read the whole thing. Prime Minister, I believe I'm speaking for the vast majority of New Zealanders, 90%, in expressing major concern at the seriously out-of-balance governance perspective your government is continuing to pursue in line with your hugely distorted ideological bias as reflected in your Maorification agenda. This distortion clearly reflects a lack of balance in your caucus in favour of its Maori activist members. It seems clear that this, this strongly out-of-balanced bias re reflects the deliberate structuring to pursue an ideological obsession favouring your Maori activist caucus members and their personal ambitions for self-enrichment, power and control observably all strongly endorsed and supported by you. These Maorification agendas embrace a strategy and related range of objectives, all of which are potentially totally destructive of our New Zealand society. Divisively separatist, deliberately destructive of our democratic system, and totally unacceptable to, to probably 90% plus of New Zealanders. The deliberate and totally dishonest reinterpretation of the Treaty of Waitangi for solely political purpose, solely political and activist self-interest goals is not acceptable. The totally dishonest, distorting and deliberately misleading reinventing of our history for sole political purpose is not acceptable. History has already happened, is actual, factual and cannot be relived. The proposed mandatory teaching and learning of Māori language, a limited language with no utility in our schools for intended short and long-term strategic political control purposes, is not accepted. It's not acceptable. Three Waters is an obviously obvious play to give Māori activists particularly, but notionally all Māori's control of our water resources and assets. It is it too is totally unacceptable. All these and other deliberately contrived plans to change New Zealand's government's governance to give Maori effective control of our country are totally unacceptable. It is hard to believe it is being attempted, but it's it is to, but it is stopped now immediately. We will not tolerate what you are looking to achieve. We will not accept any system by which probably less than 1% or 2% of the population, notionally 15% Maori, rule the rest of us, 90%. We won't put up with apartheid. It is time 
for you and your totally self-interest activist-driven caucus to start governing for all New Zealanders, not just for yourselves. We've had enough of your, you and your active colleague, activist colleagues totally lacking in perspective ideology. And what would I say to that? What a load of crap. If you look at the Maori caucus, and we, we just, we'll just pull out the activist word, the only person I can see in the National Party caucus of Maori descent who's had, some, has had any form of activism role is Willie Jackson. The rest of them are fairly conservative, and I suspect now Willie Jackson is more and more conservative, so I don't see any Honeharawiras. I don't see any Tama'itis, I don't see any Titafai Harawetas, and I don't see um, Waititi, and so on and so on, in the ranks of the Maori caucus of the government. If you want those, if you want real activists, that's, that's who you'll get. The other, other part of it is around, um, he believes, it almost feels like these things, feels that Maorification, as he calls it, it's a horrible word, is being rammed down our throats and to, to put it bluntly I'd say it isn't and Maori would say well you Europeans came here and you rammed you out your culture down our throats to such a point that we couldn't speak Maori at school or we wouldn't teach Maori at school for many years and you did away with our tohungas and etc 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 and this other thing about history we as a show have talked this at, at length about history and he and he says to here see here we'll just say it again misleading reinventing of our history for solely political purposes is not acceptable history has already happened it's fact, actual factual and cannot be relived it yeah, of course can't be relived but People will need to know what actually bloody well happened in the in the realm of history of this country because there were many aspects of history that weren't taught in school. It weren't talked about probably in the home um, because, as Mick has said numerous occasions, um, it's usually the victor who writes the history. It's not the loser. And history should be, this country should be told warts and all. And it doesn't matter if it, it's something um, horrific done by Europeans, something that, done, um, that was horrifically done by Maori. It still has to be talked about. And the other one, that, and, you, and you, get it from, you get it from this, the 90%. Well, which hat has he pulled that one out of? 90%, there is probably... A number of people in this country, and I think it would be quite a, quite a number, who can claim to have some form of Maori ancestry, the likes of myself, the likes of Fred, and so on and so on. And we, and I in particular, are um, quite looking to the changes that are going to be made in the history front particularly the teaching of history in the school and not ramming it down people's throats. We're just going to say this is how, this is what, this is a perspective of history. You could see it and view it and say this is a European perspective of it, this is a Maori perspective of it, and, and so on. And you can see that you're 
actually being fair to both sides. It he it sounds as if he wants um, the the victors um, the history written by the victors to stay as it is, and I think that I think that is actually wrong because we're not teaching people fact. We're teaching a diluted story told by the victors, and the other and the other part of it is around. Three Waters is an obvious, obvious play to give Maori, and he puts activists there, control, or Maori control of our water resources and assets. Well, I think in the fine print that's incorrect. There'll be Maori, Maori groups will have a say, but it won't be an overwhelming, it won't be an overwhelming say. There, there will still remain local control over the assets. And it won't be, as he's put it, complete and utter control. So, this whole this whole letter that I've read to you so, it sounds like one of two things: delusional in um, in many aspects, and probably quite distorted. And from the uh, probably from another perspective, um, in whose interest is this letter being written for? It surely might be written written in the in the in the interest of the majority of all New Zealanders. So we're getting these fringe people coming out there making comment about certain things and they're not not really um, looked at all the facts. And it, it, it sounds to me that a person like Mr Perrett and his ilk are, are scared of having their secured position undermined by by the truth and by things that need to change so the less we see about these less we see about these sorts of people and their negative comments the better
morning uh, the All Blacks played the USA Eagles in Washington DC and the game resulted in a a drubbing to the USA side by 104 to 14. We have spoken on free left turn about the, the inequalities in rugby and Fred mentioned the, the Tongan episode where the All Blacks have all the flash gears, um, the flash uh, dietitian, and so on and so on, while the team from Thomas basically probably may have a jersey or two and call upon players to who actually do actually work. So that is a big discrepancy between the All Blacks and the Tongan side. Um, compared to the USA, well, we know the USA has got um, sports such as the NBA, uh, the NHL, the NFL, and that tend to be the dominating um, sports of that country. Rugby is a little less of a, is a known sport over there, although they've probably played it since about the turn of the 20th century. So that in, in saying that, the, I think the USA can improve in that front. We know that they have Im- improved in this seven style of rugby. So, yep, only thing to get better for the USA. they got plenty of money as compared to the likes of Tonga, uh, the Cook Islands and so on, who also play rugby. Interesting, the story of rugby. Um, it goes right back to 1823 and... The story was that William Webb Ellis, a pupil of a public school called Rugby, picked up the ball while they, while they were playing soccer and ran with it. So that's where it was born in that particular frame. And if you know your literature, um, Tom Brown's school days is 
based on that school and um, Thomas Arnold was the well-known headmaster of the time. But rugby, particularly in England, tends to be the sport of public school. And that was probably what it looked like through the 19th century. However, when we look at the history of both uh, rugby and rugby league, we need to sort of work out why there was a, a split, because rugby league was formed in the 1890s, and why was that? It goes back to about the 1890s in Britain, and okay, I did say that the sport of rugby was predominantly public school, however, it was right through the country, including the north of England, which was, well, predominantly working class. And I'm just going to have to quote it from um, Wikipedia about this, about how rugby league was actually formed out of rugby. So it goes back to 1895, as I said, um, in Huddersfield in the West Riding of Yorkshire, when the Northern Rugby Football Union broke away from England's established rugby rugby football union to establish its own competition. And they talk about schisms, um, similar schisms happened to the sport of rugby in this country and in Australia. But the background to, to its splitting has something to do along the lines of um, the ability to pay players um, who were taken away from work and places like that. Um, because it was purely amateur, the sport of rugby um, in the 19th century and right up till the most of the 20th century. But the important, important thing is the schism in England. In 1892, charges of professionalism were laid against rugby football clubs in Bradford and Leeds, both in Yorkshire, after they compensated players for missing work. Yeah. This was despite the fact that the English Rugby Football Union was, was allowing other players to be paid, such as the 1888 British Isles team that toured Australia and New Zealand. Um, according to Henry Hamill of his payments to, to represent New South Wales against England in 1904. So there's two examples there that rugby players were actually being compensated. In 1893, Yorkshire clubs complained that Southern clubs were overrepresented on the RF, RFU committee and that the committee meetings were held in London at, these, at times that made it difficult for Northern members to attend. By implication, they were arguing that this affected the RFU's decision on the issue of broken line payments as compensation for the loss of income to the to the detriment of northern clubs who were, who made up who were made up predominantly of english rugby clubs payment for broken time was a proposal put forward by yorkshire clubs that would allow players to receive up to 6 shillings 
equivalent to 34 pounds in present day terms when they miss work because of match commitments. The idea was voted down by the RFU. In August 1893, Huddersfield signed star players George Boak and John Forsyth and Carlisle-based clubs Cumberdale Hornets. The transfer was sudden and both men were summoned to appear before Carlisle's Magistrates Court for leaving their jobs without giving proper notice. Huddersfield was also accused of offering cash inducement for players to move clubs contrary to the strict rules of the RFU. After an investigation, Huddersfield eventually received a long suspension from playing matches. The severity of the punishments for broken time payments and their widespread application to northern clubs and players contributed to a growing sense of frustration and absence of fair play. Meanwhile, there was an obvious comparison with the Professional Football League, which had been formed in 1888, sorry, comprising of 12 associated football clubs, six of whom were Northern English England. In this environment, the next logical step was for the Northern rugby sides to form their own professional league. And as a result, that's what happened. In 1895, um, in a meeting in Manchester, prominent Lancaster clubs like Broughton Rangers, Lee, Oldham, Rochdale Hornets, St. Helens, Tileway, Warrington, Woodness and Wigan formed their own union. And that was the evolution of rugby league. Predominantly in the northern part of England, predominantly amongst the working class areas. Um, as I say, most of England rugby in the 19th century was by public school, but a lot of them went to public, um, well, public schools, particularly in the south, but in the north, particularly working class people played rugby league. And they um, needed to take work off to play rugby league, as I said before. And the and you, and you can you bring it forward to almost almost current times, or within or say within the last last um, forty or fifty years, that predominantly rugby league is played in working class areas. It's a sport, as I say, for, for England, it's a sport of the working class. There, apart from soccer, in places like New Zealand where rugby league's been played, um, take off take off the professional um, component, um, the professional playing component that we see played in Australia, and the teams in New Zealand, in Auckland, predominantly from working class areas, in Wellington, working class areas, Christchurch, Ditto, and over in the west coast, uh, played by miners and, and, and teams like Runanga, etc. So it is, rugby league is the, traditionally is the sport of the working class. As opposed to rugby, more from the, as I say, public, school and, public schools in England, private schools in South Africa and Australia, exclusive schools here in New Zealand, uh, yeah, and and well funded, but the whole argument around how rugby league was actually formed, and I'm, and, I'm going, and was that the ability to pay players who couldn't, um, who had to take time off work to play rugby league. So that's where it's all come from. 
and now we have a predominant in our professional system for both rugby league and rugby union but my thinking is if you look at the grassroots rugby league um, game it still retains working class roots local and independent free fm 89.0 Stop to put gas in the car And stand in line behind a barefoot man Who's buying cigarettes in a chocolate bar I catch sight of my reflection in the smash-proof glass And I thank my lucky stars Look at this frame that carries my name The one that carries me around my hair and I don't care if it's sticking up or lying down and the light from the forecourt spills all over the cars and I thank my lucky star these shoulders and these hands all the bits that make up a man they stand in line Glad of their company, glad for all they've done for me. In this morning, I notice a warning light and I stop to put gas in the car. And suddenly, the street lights all go out and the dawn comes creeping up the harbor.
Well, you can't do a free left turn without mentioning Labour Day or the significance of Labour Day. To most New Zealanders, Labour Day is seen as a holiday, a three-day weekend where you can have a bit of a spending splurge. You can see by all the advertising that goes on the television, in the newspapers, etc., um, all the bargains that one can have um, if you have if you indulge in a spending spree. Uh, the issue this year, this time around, is that because of the COVID restrictions, there's not so much spending. Uh, people not going out and spending the amounts of money that businesses want. They they crave these sorts of days. It gives it gives them a profit. It's interestingly that's how most people will view Labour Day. They don't tend to view Labour Day from a historic perspective of why why does this country have a Labour Day? Uh, we have to go back to the 19th century and remember a gentleman called Samuel Parnell and the and the eight hour day. Uh, he came to New Zealand. He was a uh, he came from England um, and he. He indicated that there's eight hours, to, eight hours rest, eight hours to play, eight hours work, and because labour was scarce or school labour was scarce in those times, he basically had his had the employer over a barrel. It wasn't until the end of the 19th century that the concept of labour, labour day, was in, was endorsed and set. In, in statute in this country and it's been in place ever since and that's what we should remember this particular day not for spending but we should remember this day as uh, one where workers rights were fought over um, in, in many strikes industrial action etc for the betterment of the worker, and you can think about what what sort of things did 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 it did the, does this day really represent? Well, uh, you're getting holiday pay, you get sick pay, you get safety in the workplace, you get better working rights, better better working conditions, etc. 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 That's what that's what it means. But there are people out there, and you can probably name them. Who would like to take those rights away? We've seen, it's probably since the 1980s, 1990s, workers' rights being eroded around the edges by um, particularly right-wing governments, and and where bosses are taking a fair chunk of control. Uh, other other sort of kind of aspects where where workers' rights have been eroded is around. The, the decline in union membership and and the, and the growth of individual contracts and things like that. Lo and behold, we have seen other things that would make other people's, well, skin crawl, basically, that we have people who work in this country for a pittance, even though we've got all these labour laws. We've heard, we've heard examples of slavery in this country, despite our labour laws. Yeah, it seems to be that um, despite having this day in statute, um, there's a very thin veneer between 
um, retaining these um, rights, workers' rights, and losing them completely. Um, a particular government could could actually do away with Labor Day if they had the numbers, and that would be a, a sad indictment on on the on the on the nation um, to lose those particular rights around. Um, labour, because it's very important. Workers deserve rights. You're not supposed to be treated like a dog. And we only know that coming out of the 19th century in particularly, that with the whole concept of low pay and long working hours, etc., etc. And we know that when, when unions got formed, they fought for these things for better working conditions, tooth and nail. They fought for um, better pay tooth and nail um, and some of these things could be written in blood uh, you just have to look at some of this um, um, industrial action that's happened overseas um, in the USA in the, in the mining industry um, over over in um, fascist Germany where uh, trade unions were basically crushed and other left-wing groups were chucked into prison and exterminated Work, work the, the road to good working conditions, um, good um, pay, has, has been fought in blood, fought in blood for a lot of places. Uh, it, it has happened here. It has happened here. We've we've had the um, the nineteen thirteen strikes, where um, the Massey government used uh, farmers to break up strikes. We had the 1951 lockout. Um, again, there was a lot of deprivation, particularly of workers and their families, um, and particular unionists were um, condemned for that, although we know that the, if, uh, the, the Federation Labour leader of the time uh, probably sold out the union, or sold out particular unions um, in, those, in those years. So yeah, there's there's a blood being spilt, treachery has been committed, um, but yeah, we I think we've got better working conditions these days. However, the the erosion you can you can see the erosion, and the erosion is around particularly union membership, which we know has declined. Um, I I belong to a union, and I think I'm only one of two one of two people in my work. Um, posse who belongs to a union the rest decide not to maybe because they've listened to too much right wing nonsense about unions and strikes and boogeymen and things like that they, they, they always say that um, being in a union is strength in numbers to fight the capitalist um, machine and it does work if we if you look at historical examples of you people going out on strike and getting results around your better conditions, your better pay, etc. There have been times where unions have gone on strike and nothing has been gained. I know that very well. A particular strike at AFCO, Freezer Work, works in the 1980s. We went out on strike for a while and nothing was really gained. People um, struggled financially, had to rely on welfare to get by, and by the time they went back to strike, back, back, went back to work, nothing was gained, and there was a sort of comments about collusion between the union delegates 
and the employer at the time. And at that time, I swore that I'd never go back to being a member of a union based on that, based on that collusion. But now, present day, I still belong. I, I belong to a union now, it too. So going back to what, what this day is, this, this day is important for the rights of the worker. It's not an important day for the rights of the business person to make a profit. Um, we need to think that in, in, in times like this, that the rights of the worker um, are paramount to the profit line or the profit margin of the employer because of the fact that a lot of a lot of effort has been made around getting workers' rights um, up to where they are today. And as I said before, a lot of blood has been spilt in trying to um, ins basically install those rights for people. And us of today have to thank those of the past who, who, who took up that fight for the betterment of the worker of today. Here's Bart Simpson with his arms all melted and twisted. And here's one of Big Bird with his feathers all matted and black. And here are the rows of young women wrapped up in bolts of white nylon. And the families from the countryside come to take their daughters back. I look up from my desk as the light turns the Hudson to Mercury. The rest of the office are getting ready to leave. But it's ten years since the fire. Toy factory fire It's going to be one of those weeks I roll up my sleeves They said it was a death trap From a textbook Big, they did not. 
not make the six o'clock news But the pictures are something else They could have written us down to hell I knew this was a fight we could not afford to lose They said it was a death trap from a textbook
Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.